on today's Compassion Radio. They've been told since Vacation Bible School, the fear-based stuff. I got to meet this person because I don't want to go to hell and burn forever. When they catch that, there's a God in heaven who loves me desperately, and he pursued me and found me. Now I can start building on a true faith. To go fast and pray for God to move on the planet doesn't become a job. It's something I get to do. Hello and welcome to Compassion Radio. This is the place where willing hearts find the encouragement they need to really reach out for something more. A living faith that steps in when others shy away. A way of life that takes risks to build God's kingdom on this earth in every nation, culture, tribe, and tongue. We're glad you've tuned our way today. We're following up now on an interview we began yesterday with Gary Black, director of the G2 Leadership Academy a world-recognized speaker on the issues of Great Commission work, and an architect of the World Race Missions Intensive, where young people surrender to a round-the-world university of kingdom work and ethics. Thousands of young people have already completed this whirlwind expedition, serving in 11 countries in just 11 months. Gary's faith and passion for the people God sent him continues to grow, as you'll hear today. We'll also see how personal tragedy was one of the important tools that God used to shape him for such a world-changing calling and ministry. The details, frankly, are brutal. And the lessons in humility, mercy, and obedience are not easy on the heart. But it's the power of Gary's story that has added so much credibility to the story of God at work in this world. If you missed part one of the series, I urge you to catch the podcast on our website, CompassionRadio.com. We'll pick it up today as Gary and I discuss some of the powerful testimonies of lives not just saved by the gospel, but transformed into living powerhouses of the gospel through their experiences with the World Race Program. Give me a a success story. Just tell me about somebody or a group of people that you've mentored over the years that really surprised you, or at least God surprised you with what became of the investment in their lives. I know you have to probably keep some anonymity here for operational sake, maybe even disguise the country they're working in now. But tell me about something that God really gave you hope because what you saw him do in their lives. Yeah, I mean, I could give you hundreds. Uh, and it's it's amazing. I mean, we have a young man who is a heroin addict, a drug addict, no father, fatherless on the streets, meets Christ, comes on the world race, we meet him, he comes to G42, and now he's planting uh, restaurants called Harvest hmm. in America, and he's hiring a bunch of our World Race alumni and G42 alumni, and he's doing kingdom in these restaurants. Awesome. Everyone who walks in there has been immersed in prayer. It's, they're getting greeted by people who just are loving them, not just want to evangelize people, but love people really well. And through that love, let people ask questions. And feed them. Exactly. And people feel seen when they come to his place. We've got a young lady in Cambodia that's just serving all the kids, the sex traffic girls there. And mm. she, she's been there quietly. No, no marketing material, no nothing. She just serves this community that she's in to see transformation. And, and, and literally the community starts to look different when these kids will go do that. Yeah. And so there's story after story. Now, of course, we have the, the hard side where they come home and they just spin out and they kind of lose their faith for a while yeah. because it doesn't make sense anymore. And we know that 70-some percent of all of our kids that go to university lose their faith if they go as Christian. Yeah. And so it's a fight. We've got to stay in the fight, and a generation reaches itself. So I want these kids that are starting to lose their faith to meet the kids, the young people, 
who actually caught it and said, yes, it's transformed me, that's what starts to change a generation. Well, you talk about losing your faith, you know, though. I think what you're also referring to is a, a false faith. Yes. I mean, one of my mentors, uh, the author Keith Miller, would always encourage me when I would give him a response that sounded a little, little off. He would pull out a scripture and say, well, what about this scripture? And it would you know, be a corrective in my attitude. <laughs> right. And he said, well, this is the God of the Bible. Whatever God you're talking about, fire that God and get a new one because it's not in the book. Yeah. And I heard that, I think, a hundred times over the five years that I spent with him being mentored. And it was the truth. I mean, I have to constantly fire the gods that are false, yeah. remembering that the God of the Bible is the one that is pursuing me as much as much more than I'm pursuing him. And he can find a way to me when I can't find a way back to him. That God is always a good God. I may not know what good is. Yeah. And I have to trust that he will reveal it to me and bring me and not forsake me. That's right. I think the stripping away, this losing of faith is probably the healthiest thing possible as long as there is redemption and hope and someone to come alongside at the bottom of that. That's right. Because I do, too, want to see this generation discover the real Jesus and the real ways he works, not the ones we've been shoved down our throats as the only true Christianity, which is much more about politics and identity than it is about living out the gospel life. So what are you seeing the big thing that's being stripped away from those who are desperate for a real faith? And what are they discovering when they finally jettison the old stuff? Yeah, you know, I think it's Romans 12 too, right? When Paul says, don't conform to the world. Mm. And I think by conforming, we've taken our religion. And if you don't believe the way we believe, then we're going to be violent about it or not friendly about it. Mm. Instead of it all being about love. Once these kids find out that Look, this thing is, I was born to be loved. I was put on this planet because there's a God in heaven who loves me desperately, and he pursued me and found me. Once I can get that established, now I can start building on a true faith instead of, I got to get this saved thing in me and meet this person because I don't want to go to hell and burn forever. Hmm. And that's been the shift. That's the unlearning that we've got to do with these kids because they've been told since vacation Bible school, the fear-based stuff, as we've talked about. And so... So yeah, when they catch that inside and how good he is and that how much he actually loves them, to go fast and pray for God to move on the planet doesn't mm -hmm. become a, a job. It's not about a moralistic structure thing that I have to go do. It's something I get to do. I become peace. I become joy. I become these things. Because the biggest thing, I think the persecuted church of America, if I can say it that way, is anxiety and mm. suicidal thoughts. Yeah and depression and pornography. And we've got to teach these kids to break the agreement of I am depressed. I want yeah. that agreement with depression broken. Yeah. Now I can walk you out of depression because you've broken the fact that you are depressed and had to be put on meds and all the things. Now, I'm not taking away from any of that. Some of that's very necessary at times, but we've overdone it, if that makes sense. Okay, Gary, that's a natural pivot then back to a personal story. And I want to explore that for a while in this program and the programs to come. When you talk about breaking the bonds that hold us back and that have literally kept us captive, you get images of the Chibok girls being taken by the Fulani and disappearing into the forests of Central Africa, stolen away from their parents, most of them never coming back, some of them being rescued. But they are in that black box, and there seems to be no way out of that. And yet somehow, sometimes, miracles do happen because people of faith and of courage stepped in and said, no, we will not forget them. We will not forsake them. We will go find them. And often they are found and they are brought back out. They are redeemed by a blood price being paid to win their lives back like Jesus did for us. 
So they're living that out. But this, uh, this generation is stuck, as you say, behind that wall of definitions. Forces that are not of God want to define people as and give them no hope because the father of lies does not want us to hope because that would let the truth in. Yeah. And that truth transforms us. But I got to step back and say that you know this because of your family history, and you alluded to it at the beginning of our conversation. Tell me about how those darknesses and those lies and things stole from you and your family and how you've had to respond to that in your faith. Yeah, Ram, in the 90s, I had a ministry called Rock the Nations, and it kind of turned into a small movement of prayer and fasting for America and the nation. It culminated in 99. We had a close to a million kids on the Washington, D.C. mall, all just praying and fasting for America. In the midst of that, my first wife, when I married her, she was mentally ill, but she just got worse and worse. And they made a documentary of this about us. She tried to kill us many times. We had three sons. I was the first person in Colorado Springs as a man to get full custody of his kids. Hmm. Um, and I had to fight for them. And in the midst of that, in fighting for my kids and losing my first wife, I literally at a big event preaching. And my wife was gone and my kids were gone. And it's a big story, but I got them and, and got them protected. And, and in the midst of that, I met my wife. She was widowed, had two daughters. We were married. We've been married 21 years now. We got married with five, and we had one, our Noah, who's 18 now. In 2013, we were in Africa together as a family in Swaziland. It was the number one country in the world for AIDS, uh-huh. and there were just orphans everywhere. And we were helping establish orphanages in a different way. But we got ripped out of that. Uh, the government didn't like what we were doing. We were doing more than the government. And we had to move back to Colorado. Wow. And my kids just didn't translate well into the United States. My older boys had picked up rugby, hmm. became USA rugby players, full ride scholarships. But it was very difficult for them just to kind of be norm in the high school. And my second son, his name was Michael, was really struggling with that. And uh, we didn't know it, but he went was able to go see his birth mom and got involved with the cartel a bit in our city. It's a very wretched thing in our little city of Colorado Springs. Hmm. And Michael ended up, he, he was on a full-ride scholarship in a school in St. Louis, ended up having to take his own life in a very brutal, horrible way. What do you mean, ended up having to take his life? Well, the cartel found him and were making threats to the rest of our family, and he owed them a lot of money. Hmm. We found out later. We didn't know this. He was an incredible young man, Brom. He led teams through Africa at 14, <laughs> and wow. just NFL players. And, you know, he was really just a brilliant young man, but he made some very big mistakes. And it was very difficult for him. So he died in a brutal way. Seth Barnes beat me to where he died. I had to get on a plane in the morning. I was in shock. Um, A bunch of our world racers beat me there. We all just kind of came together. They had to carry me through that. And the story coming out of that, Brahma, is is really special. If you got one second here, my wife had told me when we moved back from Africa, she would say to me, Gary, pick your sword back up. Hmm. Keep warring for our family. Don't lay your sword down. When we moved to Spain, two years after Michael's death, I had started a company and it wasn't good. Our partners took the money and we moved to Spain to be with Andrew and and G42. And then the first month I was there, this young woman walked up to me and she said, I don't know how to say this, but she prophesied everything I'd done around the world and the missions we had done. And then she said, I have to tell you one thing. God said that you laid your own sword down and the enemy picked up your sword and killed your son with it. And I don't know what that means. And I mean, you know, I, whoa, but I fell over in what I would call travail. I just began to sob and sob and sob. And I picked my sword back up, Rom, 
and I'll never lay it down again. And what I encourage, especially men, older men, you know, one of the number one suicide rates in our country now is 50-year-old men. Uh, 84 men a week are killing themselves in America. I just read it a couple days ago. And I just want men to pick their swords up and fight for their families. But even more than that, fight for a generation because they don't know men that will fight for them. Are you ready to hear how God redeemed that story? I sure am. And we'll get back to more of my discussion with Gary Black in just a moment. Whether getting Bibles into closed countries, relief supplies into dangerous refugee camps, or providing training in theology books to barefoot pastors as they begin their ministry, these are all the kind of things that we love to share with you every day. And more importantly, they're the kind of things we like to do. You know, for over 78 years now, Compassion Radio listeners and supporters like you have absolutely been up to the task. Will you help us get ready for the next big faith challenges and opportunities of this year? Your gift today will provide the means for us to begin some new initiatives with our Bible and relief partners that reach farther than we've ever gone before. It begins with you and your brave investment in kingdom communication and kingdom action. Every time we go to the front lines of faith, it inspires your faith and your giving to the Great Commission as much as it does ours. You step up and make it possible. It's our strong desire to be going deeper, to go farther, to be braver than we've ever been, and to bring you the stories that you just won't hear anywhere else. I simply ask that you would keep giving so that we can give back to the world through our strategic ministry partners and to you with inspiring programming on this radio station and over the internet. Here's how. The first and best way to reach us is through our website, CompassionRadio.com. It's available 24-7. Our safe and secure order form there will get your gift to the places needed most and we'll do it right away. You can also support us with a call during Pacific Time business hours at one 800 868 Two four seven eight. That's one eight hundred eight six eight two four seven eight. You can also text Compassion to five three four four five to give right through your phone, no matter where you are. Of course, you can also put a stamp on an envelope and mail your gift to our Compassion Radio office, PO Box twenty seven seventy, Orange, California nine two eight five nine. Again, that's PO Box twenty seven seventy, Orange, California nine two eight five nine. However you give, we'd love to hear more about why you believe in Compassion Radio. We so much value your messages and letters. And know this, your gift is deeply appreciated. Thank you for loving us in this way. And now, back to the interview. I fell over in what I would call travail. I just began to sob and sob and sob. And I picked my sword back up, Brom. And I'll never lay it down again. And what I encourage, especially men, older men, you know, one of the number one suicide rates in our country now is 50-year-old men. Uh, 84 men a week are killing themselves in America. I just read it a couple days ago. And I just want men to pick their swords up and fight for their families. But even more than that, fight for a generation because they don't know men that will fight for them. You know, this is our story. This is why... We do what we do, not, again, motivated just by my son's death, although that's a big motivator. But he rocked for three hours in his dorm room, and no one asked him what was wrong. And I don't want to leave any young person sitting alone, rocking there, wrestling with suicide to be left alone. Yeah. I want the men and women to rise up and be there for them. And so, yeah, that's a big part of why we do what we do. What you just mentioned about that woman's prophecy over your family and your son reminds me how many times I've heard 
the devil will use facts to obscure the truth and lie to you. And so he knows the word better than we do. And he will find a way to twist it in a way to make us responsible for his crimes. And, you know, the first time I spoke that was to a bunch of coaches on the world race and they were men. And we just fell on our faces and began to sob. It just shifted something in these men's hearts of fighting. You know, we're built as men to fight for the generation. And when we're not fighting, I don't think we can find peace, Brom. I think men were built. Not Again, I'm not talking about, you know, physically fighting. I'm not talking about just marching around your city. I'm talking about finding young people who are hurting, showing them the Father's love, and then fathering them, not just mothering them. They need to be told the truth. They need to kind of be smacked around a little bit, not physically. But, you know, I like to get in these young men's faces and say, grow up. You need to actually grow up. You're acting like a child. You're 30 years old. And be fathers to them as you build trust with them. As I've traveled around the Middle East, especially, understanding more of the Arabic roots of so many terms. I mean, the Semitic language that it is, it goes back to the very core languages from which come our scriptures. And when you learn about that word jihad, which has a bumper sticker non-definition of fear in America, because it can only mean one thing and it's bad. And you find out that what we understand as jihad is the twisted version of what the same problem erupting across the Middle East and the global South. So many young men who had no mentorship and had no real love and growing up in a culture without that love, desperately needing something to strive for, which is what the word means, a striving, the struggle. Yeah. And then it gets twisted into an instrument of death and they find their only worth in a sacrifice, which is murderous. Yeah. In one flavor of this thing that we've discovered in the West as being pretty dangerous to us too. But again, a twisting of something that is innate in the spiritual psyche of what mankind was designed to be. And of course, women have their own kind of struggles and their own strivings. I'm not saying it's completely bilateral, that there's only a masculine, there's only a feminine in these kind of spiritual issues. There, of course, is overlap as us as humans. But the idea of young men rudderless and desperately needing somebody to show them away, any way will do at a certain point. Not only the real way, not mm-hmm. only the true way. So I would love to redeem that word jihad and help us in the Christian church understand what it means to step into a worthy fight. Wow, I love that. Not one that is murderous, but one that is selfless. We've been told a number of times, you and I, as we've been out there in the world, that if you're not willing to die for Christ, don't come. But don't think you have the right to be condemning others or to kill for him, because he will never ask you to do that. We get that twisted ourselves, even in the West. We think that we have the right to go attack. That's right. And we don't. We do have the right and the calling and the obligation to suffer when God says, you must for my name's sake, and you must for these people who are suffering, be with them in that. Not just fix it, but go be with them in what they're going through. Yes. We're not anti-anything, Brom. That's the thing I want the generation to hear. I'm not anti-homosexual. I'm not anti these things. I know there's a better way. I know the Father wants to come and envelop your heart when you meet him. Because there's been so much wounding and so much abuse in this generation that, my goodness, we've got to go after that abuse and love them in the mud and the guck that they're in and walk them into transformation and truth and the love of God instead of being anti-everything and then joining the world, conforming to the world in a fight of proof that I'm right and you're wrong. See, for us, it's not about right and wrong. It's about life and death. Am I bringing life to this or am I bringing death? And that's what I want the church to hear. Conforming to the world, too, I think could mean for us stepping into where the Bible would talk about the Pharisees. 
there is a world system out there that is moralistic or is religious focused and it seeks mm-hmm. power as much as anybody else seeks power. That's still a world system. So when he says do not be conformed to the image of this world, he's not talking about just going into the deep, dark corners of everything libertine and throwing your life away. It could be very much about superseding God and being God. So whatever the world system is that draws us away from Christ and Christ-likeness is going to be one of those world systems. Yes, that's right. And he's removing that spirit mm-hmm. of religion, that performance, I'm not good enough, I'll never live up to this, to that space of spirituality, of love, of life. You know, Jesus only addressed the Pharisees. Yes, he did. He loved the sinners, and he rebuked, you know, the religious. And and I just, as the church, as the bride of Christ, that's where he's trying to take us. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. So, Gary, you've stepped into a life here that is, by any stretch of the imagination, brutal in many ways. And God has been severe in his mercies with you, but he's also given you a window into his heart for you, even at the darkest places in your life. I imagine that gives you a lot of compassion to start with for anybody's story. At the same time, it's given you probably a lot more of a laser-like focus on what must be addressed and what must not be missed as we go forward in the generation to come. So you're at the head of G42. You've got all of these people around the world that you're mentoring to become world changers, whether cross-culturally or within this culture, but you're not giving up on them because you've seen God transform not just young people that you've mentored, you've seen him transform you. Yes. What are the big themes coming up in the next generation that we must address as a church? Get our big boy pants on here and say, this is what God's really calling us to, not the other stuff. That's it. That's it. It's transformation. I have learned, first of all, not have any agenda for somebody's life. I just want to get to know them. I want to know their story. I want to love them right where they are. And secondly, what God taught me through my son's death, through losing my first wife to mental illness, is to hold everything the same. Hmm. When I hear really good news, I go, yes, God, thank you. When I hear really bad news, I say, okay, Father, what are you going to teach me in this? What are we doing with this? Yeah. And I don't let it affect me in my emotions, in my soul, to where it takes me out. I have a buddy I just did a yeah. podcast with. that He got a call on July 4th a few years back, and five of his kids were killed in a car accident coming to his barbecue. <sighs> and as he was going down, he literally said subconsciously to the Father, God, let this trauma hit my spirit, not my soul, so it doesn't fragment Mm, me. And what he's learned over the last few years is that when we put our bad news, our trauma into our spirit, it gets redeemed. When we allow our emotions to run our lives, to rule us, where anxiety and depression and suicide, all these things live, and our addictions to pornography and all these things, when they're in our soul, they they fragment and they keep us stuck. When we can sit with the Father and say, God, put this in my spirit, and I'm going to hold good and bad news the same, because I know you're doing something. Mm-hmm. And Romans 8:28 really is true. Now, after my son died, I never wanted to hear that verse quoted to me again for a few years. Yeah. But it re- he really does turn everything together for good. Everything belongs. The bad, the pain, the joy, the goodness. And in my life, like my wife said it last night, I say, look, everything's amazing, and things are really hard all the time. <laughs> There's not a... Yeah. There's not a season of not, right? And I want to learn, I want to teach this generation, as I'm learning, to work from a place of rest, not work to get to rest. Hmm. Yeah. I don't want you to work for the weekend or work for that vacation. I want you every morning spending time with the Father and finding rest and work from that space instead of the other way around. Everywhere you go. Yep. 
Yeah, I think about stepping into Sabbath as being something that is that wellspring. It's not even a separate set-aside day anymore. He's brought all of the seventh day to us all the time now. Yes. And so when I talk to people who feel guilty for having worked on a seventh day, is that, did God put you there? Did you feel rested and restored? Right. Were you with him? Then you're in Sabbath. That's right. So I'm not encouraging anybody to become workaholics and use an excuse for it. The point is your spirit, if you're willing to let God steer that thing, is going to show you, you need rest. That's right. And this is the kind of rest you need right now. And you will follow him because you'll be obedient because the Spirit is already resonating with his wavelength. Oh, yeah. It's like I become the will of God and I become rest. I don't have to go look for it. Yeah. Right? I become Galatians 5.22. I become peace and joy and love and goodness. I, I don't have to go find those things because as I spend time with him, I become that. Right? And that's what we want to get to. Gary, before we close off this conversation, and it's been a wonderful hour with you, by the way. Thank you. I would like to ask you to dig a little deeper into that issue of the spirit and the soul, because I think about the soul being fractured, too. That's where we silo our lives and say, this is the hidden part. These are the other rooms I don't want people to go see. I've shut off the air to that room so no one can smell it. But this is the rest of my life I want people to see. The spirit is always so much more, in our first experience of it, vague, like a ghost. It floats around us. You can't really control it. And yet the idea of being in the spirit for me, I'm learning more and more. It's kind of like if you're playing hardball and you have a bare hand to catch something, you're going to risk breaking your fingers trying to catch that ball coming at you. That for me is the soul. And you got a well-built catcher's mitt. That's the spirit. Mm. You're still out there doing the stuff that God's doing, but you're able to field the fiery arrows, the incoming missiles and stuff in a way that other people just can't because their souls are not built to resist or to absorb those kind of hits, but the Spirit of God in us is. There's more to Gary's amazing story coming up tomorrow in our final episode of this series, so I really hope you'll tune in then. To support Compassion Radio, just call us right now at 1-800-868-2478 or mail us at P.O. Box 2770, Orange, California, 92859 and online at CompassionRadio.com. We'll see you tomorrow.